Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Huckberry. Huckberry is my favorite place to shop online. Everything from clothing, they got stuff for your everyday carry, camping gear, things for your house, like furniture and even like art. You name it, they've got it. And they handpick all this stuff to feature in their store. Go check it out at huckberry.com. And if you want to see some of the things I've purchased from Huckberry over the years, go to aom.is slash aomhuck. And if it's your first time purchasing, use code ART15 at checkout and you'll save 15% off your first purchase. Again, aom.is is slash AOM Huck and then code ART15 to save 15% off your first purchase. Brett McKay here and welcome to another episode of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, one of the most iconic images of manliness, at least in America, is that of the cowboy. Filled with rugged individualism, grit, and determination, these men, along with mountain men and explorers, tamed the Wild West. Even after a century, the, the influence of these men are still with us. Boys grew up playing cowboys and Indians, and many men today still dream about saddling up and riding off into the sunset guns a-blazing. But most of our ideas about the Wild West are really just romanticized versions found in John Wayne movies. Don't get me wrong, John Wayne movies are awesome. Uh, But the reality was that living the frontier was dangerous and hard, and it required a certain kind of person to survive. Well, our guest today has written a book filled with stories about these hardy men and women who helped settle the Wild West. His name is Matthew Mayo, and he's the author of the book Cowboys, Mountain Men, and Grizzly Bears, 50 of the Grittiest Moments in the History of the Wild West. Uh, Matt has written several Western novels and is also the managing editor of Big Sky Journal. And he and his wife divide their time between Maine and Montana. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. So, Matthew, your book is Cowboys, Mountain Men, and Grizzly Bears. And I, I read here in your bio, you are actually a, a son of New England. So how did, how did a New Englander like you um, end up writing a book about the Wild West and writing novels about, about the Wild West? Well, uh, I think like a lot of folks all over America, I was raised, uh, well, I was raised on a dairy farm in northern Vermont, but like like so many folks, uh, grew up watching uh, TV shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza and Rawhide, you know, the movies of John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, and so many others. And uh, my parents were big fans of those as well, so we'd watch reruns on our little black and white set, and I'd run around outside in my cowboy outfit with my six guns and uh, my mother was very indulgent she was a great seamstress so i sported a lot of homemade cowboy duds oh later on about age eight or so i recall getting into reading pretty much everything i could find but i was really drawn to uh kids books especially the adventurous ones and from there led to all sorts of genre fiction 
mysteries, adventure tales, and uh, awful lot of westerns. So by the time I was in high school, that led me to uh, exploring more about American history. Fast forward a few years, I was married by then, been writing and publishing a lot of poetry, short stories, essays, articles, that sort of thing. Um, worked as a magazine editor and a freelance editor and writer for all sorts of publishers. And I began to write a lot of novels, but never really finished any. Then I, I got my MFA, wrote a comic adventure caper as my thesis that to date that that book's unpublished. Um, maybe it'll see the light of day someday, I don't know. And I really wanted to try something different. I'd been reading a lot of westerns all along. One day at the library, I found one by a fellow named Lauren D. Esselman, uh, who's just as well known for his detective fiction. And this western was called White Desert, and uh, it's the only book that I've ever read that when I finished it, I just turned right around and started reading it again. And I still haven't done that with any other book, but uh, it just made all sorts of sense. Something clicked, and I decided after I finished it a second time that I'd try to write one. So I, I did. Um, ended up publishing three for a publisher in England named Robert Hale. They have a Black Horse Westerns line, and they come out as hardbacks. Then they go to soft cover, large print versions, so they're out there. But at the same time, I was freelancing for different magazines, uh, one of which was Western Art and Architecture in Bozeman, Montana, and their sister publication, Big Sky Journal, uh, which is sort of a, a lifestyle culture magazine of the Northern Rockies, needed a managing editor. So in uh, June of 2008, after the uh, Western Writers Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, where, incidentally, I got to meet Lauren Esselman, among many other famous Western authors. Uh, we drove north through Utah, Wyoming, Idaho, checked out Montana, and just fell in love with the, the Rocky Mountain West and took the job, sold the house in Maine, moved out there with our two dogs. And after I was there about a month, Alan Jones, editor for Globe Pequot, had a nonfiction project in mind. He was looking for an author with a strong background in fiction. He liked my uh, sort of fast-paced Western novels and like my writing style. It meshed from there, and he, he had the basic idea for the book. And I ran it through my own meat grinder, and I said, well, what do you think of this? And added a little of this and that to the recipe. He liked it, and we were off and running. The result was the book that came out in January. Huh. And you you mentioned there that um, you, you are a fiction writer, um, mainly that's your focus, and that the the publisher who did this nonfiction book, I guess, wanted a fiction writer. Can you tell us then, you know, how you approach telling these, you know, these historical stories, you know, weaving in your fiction writing um, ability into these historical stories? Sure, it's a it's a pretty common tradition. It's called narrative history, which is basically writing history in a in a story format, and it's a, sort of a useful way of conveying history. Um, Oftentimes, history books can be pretty dry, as, as we all know, and so this is a, is a fun way of sort of spicing it up. For this book, the 50 uh, chapters in this book, as an example, there aren't all that many eyewitness accounts available. Certainly no eyewitnesses left alive, I don't believe. If they are, they're pretty impressive. As far as the accounts, if there are written accounts of them, even when they are, they're, they're often one-sided and poorly written, or they're heavy on fact, which is great, but they're laid on detailed dialogue, um, or the eyewitness accounts of the events just don't exist at all. So you take the, the basic facts and figures, dates, times, people, locations, 
they form the skeleton, and then you doll it up with organs, blood, flesh, the whole works, <laughs> and uh, put likely words in their mouths. And all the while, naturally being cautious to stay within the the, uh, the parameters of what really happened, where it happened, and how it happened. Um, an example to help illustrate that would be uh, in the book, uh, the uh, OK Corral gunfight. I called that chapter Tombstone Gundown. Um, and since Hollywood played so fast and loose with it for decades, there's been so many books, or rather movies made of it, uh, that really uh, sort of stretch the truth here and there. Um, the public has come to form certain conceptions and misconceptions about it. I wanted to make sure if I was going to include that in the book that I uh, researched the heck out of it and in an effort to convey the full flavor of the shootout with all the facts I could muster while being careful to avoid the same errors and misconceptions that we've seen so often in, in, uh, in the movies, for instance. I tried to give it a, an interesting narrative angle. So I had I said it in uh, through Virgil Earp's, what am I trying to say, his deathbed. In other words, he was uh, he was on his deathbed, thinking back over the years and thinking about the uh, that incident in particular, how it played out. That gave me sort of an interesting in to that chapter. So you have fifty stories in this book, but I'm sure there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of of stories that you could have um, put in here. I mean, how did you decide which stories to include in the book? It wasn't easy for the very reason you just stated. I was given pretty much free reign to come up with the list once once they liked my writing style. It just I just went at it, and my initial list included way more than fifty. I came up with hundreds of possible chapters, which bodes well for sequels, which oddly enough people are already asking for. So I'm mm-hmm. happy to indulge that. Yeah. Um, to help give the book shape, I decided to break break it down into three rough categories, mountain men and Indians, man versus nature, and cowboys and gunfighters. And those rough designations gave me plenty of direction. So from there, I, I made sure each category covered well, roughly one-third of the book, and then I arranged them all chronologically at the end. It took a bit of work to make sure they each covered that one-third mostly so it didn't seem that the book was too stacked in any one direction in favor of too many gunfighters, that sort of thing, because pretty much what's expected, that's what most people know. When they think of the Wild West or the Old West, they think gunfighters, and there's so much more to it. So it made my job a lot of fun, too, as I got to root around in history and come up with what I hope for the reader are unexpected incidents in addition to the ones that are expected, like Battle of Little Bighorn, A.O.K. Corral, Hugh Glasses. 350-mile death crawl, uh, but I also included lesser events, lesser-known events, like, uh, oh, there was a horrible stampede in Texas in 1882, and um, Uncle Dick Wooten's fist fight with a Ute chief. He was driving, uh, in, in 1852, he was driving 9,000 head of sheep from New Mexico to California, and uh, this Ute chief and his warriors demanded tribute payment more than uh, old Uncle Dick was willing to pony up, so he uh, took matters into his own hands and trounced, trounced the old chief right in front of his warriors. Rather than humiliate the man further, he uh, went on to treat him respectfully, but uh, gave him that, sort of that upper edge that he needed to get through the day. Yeah. So what's your favorite story, Matt, that you included in the, the book? There, there are so many. You know, that's the typical answer, I suppose. But uh, uh, for for various reasons, I have I have a handful of favorites. 
one uh, would be the first chapter I wrote on uh, the mountain man, Hugh Glass. It has all the elements that I admired as a kid reading all those adventure stories. Uh, it's a survival story. He was attacked by a grizzly. Two men of his party were charged with staying behind with him until he died because he was he was just so messed up and so mauled that they figured nobody could survive such a thing. Um, but they were kind of freaked out at having to be left behind in Indian territory. So uh, they bolted, and they took all his stuff with them, his possible bag, his rifle, his knife. They left him for dead, but he lived. And he dragged himself 350 miles for six weeks, survived, open wounds on his back, the whole works. He was so driven by revenge, he wanted just nothing more than to, to kill those two guys. Um, one of them ended up uh, was uh, Jim Bridger, famous mountain man. He was just a punk kid at the time, and uh, I guess he learned his lesson. They humbled him a bit, but uh, Glass forgave him. Another favorite story would be the Teddy Roosevelt story, for different reasons wholly. Um, uh, the whole story, it's a short chapter, but it, it, I think it did a really decent job of conveying the vigor and, and sort of that engaging essence of the guy. And um, it was written, the way I wrote it was super pulpy and very manly, and it reads a bit like an old like a Peter Capstick safari story. And I, I think it, that chapter came out particularly well. Mm-hmm. I also like the, the way the book is, is um, built in general. It's got a lot of interesting information for people, a big bibliography, a nice introduction. Um, each chapter is followed with extra information that helps, facts and figures that helps um, it helps to bolster each chapter and uh, maybe engage people to, uh, uh, or interest them rather, to um, go and explore those incidents on their own. Hmm. And one thing I noticed, too, um, a lot of times when we think of the Wild West, we usually think of the men being the, the ones who... You know, really tamed it and settled it, but women were a big part of this as part of this as well in, in settling the West. Can you give us um, an example of about a woman who lived and faced the the dangers of the Wild West and survived? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I tried to include. Uh, certainly, it isn't fifty-fifty uh, in the book, um, mostly because more men were involved in gritty encounters than women. But there were lots and lots of amazing women in the Old West. Let's see, uh, Marie Dorian is one that comes to mind. She's a Sioux Indian. She traveled west with her husband. Uh, he was a trapper and, a, a, I think, a, sort of a guide and interpreter. They traveled to Oregon Territory in 1811 on this, this horrible, ill-fated trapping party trip. Along the way, they were starving the whole party. It was just horrible. She gave birth to a baby that died. Plus, she had two little boys with her. And I think they were just like two and four years old, something like that. They traveled for more than 2,000 miles. And then when they got there, things started to even out. And they thought, well, okay, well, that's going to get better. And then uh, her husband and his trapping partners were killed by the Bannock Indians. And this is uh, in fall and winter. She fled with her two little boys. They traveled for months of starving and on foot in the winter over the Blue Mountains. Uh, and ended up uh, towards spring, she was saved by the Walla Walla tribe. During that time in the in the mountains, she was snow blind part of the time, which was just rough. But uh, despite that, she got her kids to safety, and uh, she lived to uh, a fairly ripe old age. Pretty pretty tough lady. Now, Matt, um, what one trait um, do you think all these people had that allowed them to face you know the challenges of settling a new frontier? I think 
there are lots of uh, big traits that come to mind, but I think it would be a mixture of the two. If I had to narrow it down to one, I would choose two. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be uh, uh, probably determination and curiosity, which is sort of a mixture of those two. Uh, they can be broken down further into sub-traits, I suppose, but those are the biggies. Uh, you take Hugh Glass, we just spoke of as an example. He was determined to live, if only to get his revenge on those two guys. Uh, there are so many other people who are determined to head west to get away from dead-end lives or oppressive situations, uh, whether they be family-oriented or, or what have you, uh, or just figure, gosh, uh, you know, back in the East, I'm, I'm a nobody, but out, out in the West, I can be somebody, I can be my own person, have some freedom. So, yeah, determination, curiosity, those would be the biggies for me. Hmm. And are there any, you know, real-life lessons you took away after researching and writing about the men you include in your book that has helped you become a better man? Yes. I, uh, two pop to mind, naturally. I can't just choose one. <laughs> um, and one of them, uh, believe it or not, is uh, the chapter on a young woman. She offered as many or more lessons in manliness than uh, I think uh, any six trigger-happy gunfighters. Uh, she's a teenage girl named Jeanette Riker. And in the fall of 1849, in what would become Montana, uh, she and her father and two brothers stopped before making their final push to cross the Rockies, and this is in the fall. And in the morning, the, the three men went off to hunt for buffalo to stock up on meat for the rest of the journey, and they never came back. And so she was afraid to move on for fear that they might come back any day. They never did. And then before she knew it, the snow came, and as we know in the Rockies, the snow really stacked up. Um, so she manned up, as they say, and uh, she, she killed, uh, insulted an, an ox, um, built a shelter, used the stove from the wagon and the wagon's canvas covering. She used logs and branches and mud, sort of burrowed in, and she survived all winter, despite the fact that she was harassed every night by cougars and wolves walking around the outside of her, her little hut, trying to get in, clawing at the thing. And in the spring, she was nearly starving. She had only a handful of rotten cornmeal and some rancid meat. The floods washed away her little house, and uh, she just had maybe another day or two left of food, and she didn't know what she was going to do. She was half, half soaked, and, uh, and some Indians found her. And they were so impressed with her that they brought her to the fort at Walla Walla. And uh, not much else is known about her, except that she went on to marry and raise a family. Um and uh, become a successful pioneer woman. Uh, no sign of her father or brothers was ever found. So I was so taken with that story that I'm writing a book about about her right now and shaping up to be a corker of a book. It's just such a fascinating story. So whenever I hear some you know whiny teenager whining about his life, I think of that girl and all she went through. And I think, boy, she'd be amazed at the sort of a toothless, cushy lives so many of us lead nowadays. Just, uh, I think she's a fine example of um, manliness. And then the other one I'll just take a sec to mention would be uh, Bass Reeves. Fascinating man, probably the most fascinating man in the book, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, he epitomized what what it means to be a sort of a straight shooting, honest man. Uh, some folks know of him, but I think everybody should know about him. Uh, and I, it's a shame that he's not more well known. Uh, and it blows my mind that Hollywood hasn't made a big-budget movie of his life. Uh, and they don't even need to embellish anything. He was a, a black man born into slavery, 
spoke a handful of Indian, uh, Indian languages. And in uh, 1875, he became the first U.S. deputy marshal, the first black American to hold that title west of the Mississippi. Uh, he was... Uh, he was illiterate, but he had people read warrants to him, and then he would memorize them. He would track those outlaws into Indian Nation and catch them. He made 3,000 arrests. He was never shot, though he was shot at many times. They shot his hat off. They shot buttons off his coat. They shot his belt. They shot his reins in half. He ended up killing 14 men, but he, uh, people say he, was never, he never shot until he was drawn on. And uh, he said the toughest case of his 35-year career was when he had to bring his uh, track his own son and bring him back for murder, and he did it. So I, I think he uh, much more so than again any uh, anybody who's famous for drawing a gun fast. I think this fellow would be uh, one to epitomize. Well, well Matthew, uh, it, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Our guest today was Matthew Mayo. Matt's the author of the book Cowboys, Mountain Men, and Grizzly Bears, 50 of the grittiest moments in the history of the Wild West. For more information about Matt's book, make sure to check out his site at matthewmayo.com. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And until next week, stay manly.
Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.